Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Eleanor Lewis Cowell knew she was in trouble. She was 22 years old, unmarried, and pregnant. This was 1946, and if you were unwed and preggers, you were in trouble. Her religious parents were furious. They sent Eleanor to the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in upstate Vermont to deliver the child in secret. There, she had a baby boy and named him Theodore. When the nurses asked who his father was, Eleanor told them that she'd been seduced by a sailor named Jack Worthington, but no man under that name could be found in the Navy or the Merchant Marines. There were terrible rumors about who the real father might actually be. It's possible the real dad was actually Eleanor's own father, Samuel Cowell. There's no doubt that Samuel was a strange man, abusive, racist, dangerous. Samuel liked to pick up stray cats and swing them around by their tails. He talked to people nobody else could see. Eventually, Eleanor returned to Philadelphia with the baby, and her parents told everyone the child was theirs, and that Eleanor was Theodore's older sister. But the boy, something was wrong with him from the beginning. Eleanor's sister, Julia, woke up from a nap one day to find herself surrounded by knives from the kitchen, and three-year-old Theodore staring at her, smiling. A year later, Eleanor took Theodore and moved to Tacoma, Washington, where her uncle Jack lived. In Tacoma, Eleanor fell in love with a hospital cook named Johnny Culpepper Bundy. They married, and Johnny adopted Eleanor's kid, and from then on, the boy was known as Ted Bundy. The first murder Ted Bundy confessed to happened when he was 27 but some believe he started at the early age of 14 with the abduction and murder of Anne Marie Burr, an eight-year-old girl who lived on his newspaper route. Eleanor's Uncle Jack was little Anne's piano teacher. I think we know that some kids, they're just born bad. Is it possible that some humans have an evil gene that drives them to murder? 
Is their fate set at birth? Or are killers shaped by their environment? Nature or nurture? Can any child grow up to become a serial killer with a little bad luck? I'm James Renner, and this is The Philosophy of Crime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The philosopher Plato had a far-out theory about where ideas come from. He believed that all knowledge is inside us at birth. Everything we could ever learn, mathematics, communication, the concept of right and wrong. He believed that our eternal souls know everything already and only have to remember what we've forgotten. He believed that all knowledge is innate. Plato wrote a bunch of dialogues featuring Socrates. They're like little plays that help to illustrate a concept and to educate the reader. He has this one dialogue, Mino, which is a collection of long conversations between Socrates and this politician, Mino, who's kind of a big deal in ancient Greece. So picture something like Neil deGrasse Tyson interviewing Bill Clinton. Socrates is trying to prove to Mino that all knowledge is already a part of our soul and just needs to be remembered. Mino kind of rolls his eyes, so Socrates asks one of Mino's uneducated slaves to come over 
and he explains that he's going to show how the slave knows advanced geometry. And Mino's all like, pfft, as if. Socrates plays it cool and uses a stick to draw a square on the ground. Each side is two feet long. He asks the slave how long each side must be in order to double the area inside the square. The slave's first guess is four. Each side must be four feet long because two doubled is four. But if each side is four feet long instead of two feet, the area inside the square does not double, it quadruples. So the slave cuts the difference and figures each side must be three feet long. That's wrong too. Socrates never once tells the slave what to do, but only continues to question his methods. Soon enough, the slave figures it out by using triangles, and he is left with an understanding of geometry that rivals the elite class of the time. The knowledge was always inside him. Socrates just used questions to bring out what was hidden inside his soul. Aristotle, on the other hand, believed that a child's mind is a blank slate at birth, a tabula rasa, and each experience and stimulus etches new information onto that slate, and our identity is the accumulation of everything written on it. Aristotle went all in on nurture. We are merely products of our environment, our experience, the external. If you were to take any baby and actively direct what they learned and absorbed, you could mold them into anything you wanted. A musician, an artist, a mathematician, a serial killer. This idea that we enter this world with no prior knowledge or sense of reason was frightening for its time because it suggested that our soul is not eternal. It suggested a beginning. In fact, it suggested that what we believe to be our consciousness is nothing but a reflection on the external stimuli we experience by living. If you think too deeply on this subject, you start to consider the notion of free will and whether such a thing really exists. If someone is born a killer, do they have any more of a choice to not commit murder than a person with sickle cell anemia has a choice to make healthy red blood cells for their body? Can we view certain behaviors as a genetic disease? On the other hand, if killers are made, how can they be held responsible for accidentally getting the right mix of abuse and neglect as a child that's needed to create these undeniable impulses? Which brings us to Burris Frederick Skinner. B.F. Skinner was a Harvard professor of psychology from 1958 to 1974, and he believed that free will is nothing but an illusion. In philosophy, this is one branch of what's called determinism. B.F. Skinner believed that what we think of as self is merely a construct and sum of all the experiences we've had since birth. Skinner said our future behavior, deciding whether or not we might do something, is always determined by a reward system in our minds. If we do this thing, will it make us feel good? Did it make us feel good when we did it before? If the answer is yes, we do it. If the answer is no, we don't. Simple as that. It's the fuzzy, subjective definition of what good and bad means where it gets tricky. Some serial killers have reported how they enjoy the rush they feel hunting other humans. Later, they may feel a crushing guilt because of the murder they committed, but soon they will seek out the pleasure of the hunt again, like an addict reaches for the bump of heroin, even when he knows it's killing him. 
Skinner is often portrayed as the Darwin of psychology, and it's a fitting analogy. We adapt to external stimuli and become something unique. Like the finches of the Galapagos Islands, external forces caused us to evolve into the being we are today. Maybe there is no free will. Maybe choice is an illusion. Consciousness, a disease. Theories are fine and all, but we're super sleuths, right? We like evidence. So where's the evidence one way or the other? What evidence is there to suggest serial killers are born bad? The study of what makes bad people bad is known as criminology, and the dude who coined the term was Caesar Lombroso, a late 19th century physician who also believed the likelihood that someone would commit a crime could be foretold by measuring the shape of their skull. Oh, and he had more than a passing resemblance to Colonel Sanders. Lombroso once said, Criminals are apes in our midst, which sounds like a cool lyric from a Led Zeppelin song, but is probably a scary thing to hear from a doctor. And he meant it literally. Lombroso believed criminals were products of evolution, genetically inferior to true, enlightened humans, closer to apes in the evolutionary chain. In fact, since evil is genetic, Lombroso believed that a good doctor could recognize the physical signs of this lower class of people. Sloping foreheads, large ears, longer arms. If you were left-handed and went to Catholic school, you can thank Lombroso for Sister Mary Grace smacking your hands with a ruler. He believed left-handedness was a sign that this person would become a degenerate. Regardless of its truthiness, this notion of biological determinism has proven to be very dangerous when mixed with the proper dose of fascism. Benito Mussolini looked for Lombroso's evidence of criminality and conveniently found it in many of his opponents and detractors, who subsequently disappeared. Political leaders might read this and think that if bad behavior is determined by certain genes, maybe we should get rid of everyone who has those genes. We should probably talk about monoamine oxidase A right about now. There's a neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, who studies the brains of psychokillers. His name is James Fallon. Fallon wondered if there might be some kind of biological marker that could help us identify people who would become sociopaths. He took scans of some bad guy's brains and compared them to normal people who had no compulsion to commit crime. What he found was that psychopaths have little to no activity in their orbital cortex. That's an area at the front of your brain, right behind the eyes. Some believe this region of the brain regulates our primal instincts and aggression. It's the impulse control security guard that speaks to you when some jerk cuts you off on the highway and advises you not to run his car off the bridge. Fallon took DNA samples from the men who lacked activity in their orbital cortex. What he found was that most of these men also had a variant of a specific gene known as MAOA, which encodes a protein called monoamine oxidase A. That's an important protein that gets rid of excess chemical neurotransmitters, stuff like dopamine and serotonin. These people are so overloaded with these feel-good chemicals, they become numb to niceness, and they can't feel satisfied unless they seek out excitement and stimulation. This protein deficiency promotes impulsive behavior, including hypersexuality, mood swings, and a tendency to violence. Fallon had found his genetic marker, 
So what does any curious mind do when they identify a psychopath gene? They test themselves, of course. And that's how Fallon discovered that his orbital cortex was quiet, and that he too had the variant MAOA gene. Biologically speaking, he was a psychopath. This led to a certain retrospection, and in hindsight, he could see the signs. As a young man, he built pipe bombs and took joy rides in stolen cars. Here's a quote from an article he wrote for The Guardian. Throughout those years, there was always the odd clinician, cleric, or teacher here and there who told me point-blank that there was something decidedly evil about me. I always blew them off while I laughed at their comments that never even cracked a smile. After all, I knew my constant manipulation of people and of situations was all in good fun. End quote. Knowing that there is a genetic component to psychopathy, Fallon traced his family history to see who he might have inherited his wonky genes from. He learned that his great-great-great-grandfather was hanged for killing his own mother. Oh, and one of his great-aunts was Lizzie Borden, so there's that. Still, James Fallon has never killed anybody. If he has the killer gene, what kept his compulsions at bay? He credits his good fortune to having a mother who loved him, to having a decent childhood, to having not been abused as a boy. Killers, Fallon believes, have a genetic predisposition to criminal behavior, but they require the right push as a kid to become real monsters. Without a doubt, psychopathic behavior can be seen in generations of some families, passed down like red hair or hazel eyes. Consider Ward Weaver. Weaver lived in Oregon City with his son and daughter. In 2002, one of his daughter's friends, Ashley Pond, went missing. Two months later, another of his daughter's friends, Miranda Gaddis, vanished. Weaver had his son help him dig a very big hole in the backyard, which was then covered up with concrete. On August 13th, Weaver was arrested after he attempted to rape his son's girlfriend. While in custody, his son told police that his dad had confessed to murdering Ashley and Miranda. They found Ashley in a metal drum under the concrete slab. They found Miranda in a microwave box in the shed. Twelve years later, Weaver's son Francis was arrested for the murder of a man he shot during a drug deal. Reporters were fascinated by the family's plight and did a little more digging. That's when they discovered that Ward Weaver's father was on death row too. He came upon a stranded motorist in 1981. He clubbed the man to death, then raped and murdered the man's fiancée. Ward Weaver's grandmother, according to family stories, used to run around with a butcher knife, threatening to cut off her son's penis. Note to self, call mom today. There's another study you should know about. The guy who wrote the book on criminology, Carl O. Christensen, took a close look at the lives of 3,586 pairs of twins to see what sort of influence genetics might have on bad behavior. This was in Denmark in 1974, and let me tell you something, the Danes have their shit together. They figured out universal health care over there, and they've documented everything, which meant when Christensen wanted to study twins, he could easily comb through records to find every pair of twins born in Denmark in the last 50 years. Good luck trying to do that in America, where poor families are not as entitled to health care as rich people, and births are billed to private citizens. The Danish Twin Study what Christensen found was impossible to ignore. If you're a twin, you have a 22% chance of being arrested for a crime 
if your twin has been already. If you're an identical twin, the chances you'll end up in jail after your twin gets arrested is 52%. So yes, without a doubt, there's a genetic component to crime, but the odds are still not 100%. Does that mean some environmental issue helped direct one twin to become a better man than his brother? Or does it simply mean he never got caught? If environment is a factor, perhaps psychopaths can be created by design. Maybe we can make a killer. But who would ever do such a thing? How about the United States government and Harvard University? This story stars another young Theodore. This Ted was brilliant. In 1958, when he was just 16 years old, he was accepted into Harvard's freshman class. He wanted to study mathematics and was thrilled to devote his time and energy to his difficult classes. Once there, Ted participated in a psychological study being conducted by renowned psychologist Henry A. Murray. Murray had recently devised a rigorous psychological test for new recruits of a government department that would later become the CIA. And with government funding, Murray started to experiment on young college kids in order to make his test better and to learn more about social interactions between people. His heart may have been in the right place. Murray was frightened that the world of 1958 was on the edge of destruction. He feared that the war of ideals between the United States and Soviet Russia would lead to all-out nuclear annihilation. What he hoped to do was find a way for us to communicate better with one another. He thought that if he could perfect the way people communicate one-on-one, -on -one, perhaps we could apply it to the way nations of people communicated with each other. Maybe we could all be friends. What he was really playing at was brainwashing, but it was brainwashing for the good of humanity. Dr. Murray asked his subjects to write an essay about their dreams and aspirations. Then his team led the subjects into a room one at a time and hooked them up to electrodes and monitors and tore their silly, fluffy dreams apart. They belittled their aspirations. They broke their subjects down to see what kind of reaction they would get. Then they replayed film of the abuse for their victims to watch. For Ted, who was bullied as a young boy, it was too much. Much too much. Later, when Ted Kaczynski constructed his mail bombs in a tiny cabin in the woods of Montana, he would send them to scientists and academics. The last person the Unabomber killed was a man named Gilbert Murray in 1995. It seems to me that some killers are born and some killers are made. Perhaps it's not nature or nurture, but a little bit of both. If you're interested in this sort of thing, there's a book you should read, The Anatomy of Violence by the psychologist Adrian Rain. Dr. Rain, who sounds like a villain in a Batman story, but seems to be a kind, soft-spoken man, was the first to perform brain imaging on convicted murderers. He and his team brought PET scan machines into maximum security prisons. Volunteer convicts were escorted in, wearing shackles, and the doctors injected them with radioactive chemicals that would light up in the brain scans. What Dr. Rain found was that murderers usually have a poorly functioning prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that regulates behavior and controls emotion. But Dr. Rain noted other commonalities between his subjects, and not all of them were biological. Exposure to heavy metals, such as lead, at an early age seemed to cause aggressive behavior later in life. Up until the 1970s, we still used lead paint still used leaded gasoline. These went away by the 80s, 
The interesting thing is if you chart the decline of lead products in the United States, it fits perfectly against the decline of violent crime. Dr. Rain also realized that not all men with poorly functioning prefrontal cortexes went on to commit murder. In a recurring theme, the good doctor scanned his own brain and discovered he had the same lack of activity in that region of the brain as his subjects. So what was the difference? Dr. Rain credits his mother's love. Nearly all the killers he studied came from broken homes. Biology is not destiny, Dr. Rain told Terry Gross in an interview for NPR some years ago. But he said, some people have more free will than others. After his study, Dr. Rain came to believe that murderers should be cut some slack because of the biological and environmental hand they were dealt in life. Maybe instead of prisons, we should be keeping them in a safe, secure facility that is more humane. Maybe if we offered such a thing, they could check themselves in before their compulsions led them to kill. We now have the capability to test for the genetic markers that make a person more likely to commit a crime. We can question a suspect about their childhood to find out if they might have ingested lead or had a mother who beat them. We can test for psychopaths. But should we? Do you know the writer John Ronson? He's a fairly big deal in the UK, and thanks to some movies and NPR, he's gained quite a following here in the States as well. He wrote a story a few years back that was turned into a movie for George Clooney called The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was about Ronson's investigation of the CIA's experiments with psychics during the Cold War. More recently, he co-wrote the wonderfully weird film Akja. He's been touring lately to talk about another book of his, The Psychopath Test. One day, Ronson noticed that there are 374 separate mental disorders listed in the DSM. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is a big book used by psychiatrists to figure out what's wrong with people who come into their offices. It seemed like most people could find a mental disorder catered to their particular quirks. Maybe we were overdiagnosing. Ronson writes about this one patient of Broadmoor Hospital in England, this frightening high-security facility that houses the criminally insane. He called this guy Tony. And Tony, it seemed, had faked being insane in order to avoid being sent to a regular prison after he beat someone up when he was just 17. His friend told him to fake being insane so he would be sent to a cushy hospital instead of a prison. But if he'd gone to prison, he'd have gotten out in five years. By the time Ronson caught up with him, Tony had been at Broadmoor for 12 years. One of the things keeping people like Tony locked up was the psychopath test invented by the Canadian psychologist Robert Hare. Dr. Hare had come up with a simple 20-question test to figure out if you're a psychopath. Some of the questions include, do you have a grandiose sense of self-worth? And do you have a lack of remorse? Are you sexually promiscuous? Problem is, most of us can say yes to a couple of those questions. If a shrink wants to keep you locked up, all they have to do is point to part of the test as evidence that you're too dangerous to leave. Anyone might be deemed a psychopath by a legitimate doctor. Ronson himself enrolled in a psychopath spotting course and is now certified to spot a psychopath at 100 yards. He's an anxious person by nature, 
a kind of young British version of Woody Allen, without the creepy stuff. And it didn't help his generalized anxiety disorder to suddenly see psychopathic tendencies in friends and neighbors, and himself. He came to understand that we shouldn't put a terrible label on someone, that we shouldn't define a person by their eccentric edges. We're all a little crazy, aren't we? Last year, Ronson tweeted about a book I wrote about the Moore Murray case, True Crime Addict. He had been listening to me read the audiobook as he walked around Central Park. But there were a couple things about my take on the case that he didn't like. He didn't like that I had once referred to Mora as a sociopath, and he believed the case was much simpler than I had made it out to be. Like many, he believed that Mora had simply walked into the woods after her crash on Route 112 and died of the cold. I tweeted back to Ronson. I'd wagered to bet that if you went to the crash site, you'd change your mind. You're on, he said. And that's how I found myself in New Hampshire with Ronson and his nice camera person and producer, Lena Mesitzes. I took them out to the crash site and showed him what you can't see online, that there are dozens of houses all around the area where Mora disappeared. If she'd walked into the woods, she'd have walked into a community. All right, I'm convinced, he said. She didn't wander into the woods and die. He was still a bit disappointed that I had been so eager to paint Mora in a negative light, though. But in my defense, I was looking at incomplete information that told a certain story. Mora, after all, had stolen credit card numbers, committed identity theft, had an affair with her track coach, stole makeup from the commissary at Fort Knox, and had a gangbang in the pool at UMass when her boyfriend was stationed at Fort Sill. What I didn't know, though, was that her boyfriend, Bill Roush, was an abusive man, controlling, manipulative. He's since been accused of terrible things in D.C., sex assaults and pushing a woman down the escalator in the metro, choking a woman and telling her, I'm going to kill you like I killed Mora. No, Mora wasn't a psychopath. She was a survivor. Anyway, I told Ronson that I knew from psychopaths because I was one. You see, at the bequest of my psychologist, I'd taken a different psychopath test, the MMPI. The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory Exam was developed by a couple shrinks at the University of Minnesota in 1939, and it's the litmus test for psychopathy in the United States to this day. In fact, it's the test the CIA uses to weed out psychos from their pool of applicants. It's 504 questions, ranging from how often one is constipated to whether you enjoy a glass of wine at the end of the day, in which case you are clearly a latent homosexual. And when the results came back, she said I'd scored very similar to Ted Bundy. Ronson laughed. But I've been sitting with you, he said, and you don't seem like a psychopath to me. I'm certified to spot them so I can tell. But you care about your family, about other people than just yourself. You have empathy. Psychopaths don't have that. It's clear to me now that the creation of a psychopath requires the right mixture of genetic predisposition and environmental bad luck. But that's not what we're really interested in when we consider this argument, right? Aren't we more interested in what this says about free will? Scientists have discovered bad genes and bad brains. They've discovered ways to shape behavior with abuse and neglect, but they have yet to discover anything that suggests we're capable of independently choosing how to act. Our behavior, they say, is directed by the chemical makeup of our neuropathways, by the sometimes skewed system of rewards and punishments our parents taught us. 
Every action is actually a reaction to internal or external factors and our consciousness merely a cruel, self-important, deceptive joke. And if that's true, how the hell can we punish anybody? Nobody ever really has a choice. And yet we want to believe we have a choice. I do, I believe. I can't point to any evidence, but I believe we are responsible for our own actions. Adults, anyway. I think every child is pretty much crazy until they're about 25. So if we can choose, what gives us that choice? A soul, right? Something outside the influence of nature and nurture. Something beyond our current understanding. But now we're veering into the metaphysical, the realm of faith, and we're uncomfortable. I want to believe we have a choice because it would be too cruel to believe otherwise. And even if I can't show you where inside your brain your soul hangs out, there is one bit of circumstantial evidence I keep in mind, which suggests we have the ability to choose right from wrong. The simple fact that we haven't managed to destroy ourselves. Yet. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was produced and recorded by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find links to all of my books at jamesrenner.com. My latest, True Crime Addict, is about my investigation into the bizarre disappearance of Maura Murray. As well as producing and recording this episode, William Mankey also writes the music for the podcast. You can find the other things he makes at boxwoodpinball.com. I'm often asked if writing about crime makes me more fearful of the world. The opposite is true, actually. We hear about these terrible crimes only because they are so rare. And there's one simple thing that each of us can do to make abductions and kidnappings even more rare. We can spend a little time making friends with our neighbors. If everyone took the time to really get to know the people who live to the left of us and to the right of us, we'd be able to recognize who needs help in this world. Don't be afraid. Make more friends. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.